Welcome to the Digital Report Podcast, where you discover how to connect, influence, and inspire in the digital age. And the voice that was like a ghost in the background of this story that's unfolding in my dream was, it's all in the words, but you must impress the words. And it kept saying it, the kid's voice kept saying, it's all in the words, but you must impress the words. And I just remember in my dream thinking, what the hell does that mean? Mm. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And then the dream moved on a little bit and took the bracelet and it's on the little girl's wrist now. And he said to her, press that bracelet down in the middle and hold it for 10 seconds, which she did. And then she just removed her finger and just sat there looking at the old man. And he said, now move the bracelet away from that spot and reveal what's underneath the bracelet. And she looked down and the word belief was in her wrist as like imprinted in the skin, pressed into the skin. And he said, what does that word say to the little girl? And she said, it says belief, sir. And he said, where is the belief? And she said, it's on my skin, sir. And he said, no, no, he said, the belief's not on you. The belief is in you. That's all you ever needed. Welcome to another Digital Report podcast. I'm Jitin Palaha, and on today's episode, I have the amazing Mark Baker, who's a sought-after speaker who captivates audiences with his authenticity and empathy. He's an author of two books, The Unbreakable Spirit and The Imprint Phenomena, and he's the inventor of the Imprint Bracelet, which empowers individuals to develop empowering beliefs. Welcome, Mark. Welcome to the Digital Report podcast. Good morning, Jatinder. It's fantastic to be here. Fantastic. I'm I'm looking forward to chatting to you. And like with you know, with with this uh, podcast, the first question I usually ask is, what is rapport to you? Um, rapport, uh, I would say that it's really connecting with other people and understanding people's feelings and connecting with people on an emotional level that you're able to communicate and feel close to that person. That's that would be my definition of rapport. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. And, and you know, before we started the podcast, we were talking about how, um, you know, you, you're sharing a bit about your journey, about how you went from like, not really, um, you were in sales and sales and marketing, right? And uh, you started off and you were not so great at it, and then you became really good at it. And let's talk a bit about that, because I think it's so relevant for people to hear how you went through that journey and, you know, built, started building rapport. Yeah, sure. I mean, I... Oh. You know, I've just written another speech for a TED talk that I'm going to be doing soon. And so you've just kicked off something that I actually kicked that off with because I was always a very ambitious person. But I was physically and mentally abused and tortured for much of the first 20 years of my life. And my father told me every single day, you'll never amount to anything and no one will ever want you. So that created the worst kind of beliefs within me, hopelessness, helplessness and worthlessness. Mm-hmm. So. And so it's kind of a bit of a curse to have those kind of beliefs about yourself and be ambitious because you set these great big lofty goals, which I was always a prolific goal setter. I had such great dreams to change the world, but because of those innate subconscious beliefs I had being hopeless, helpless and worthless and and basically suffering from chronic imposter syndrome, it meant I never followed through on anything. So the ambition coupled with the lack of belief I had in myself was actually really crippling. Um, so I went, I became, I saw this advert in the paper. I was actually going away traveling with friends of mine. I was a trainee manager at a supermarket 
And I'd made this plan with friends of mine to go traveling across Europe. There was four of us were going to go. We'd bought a VW camper van. Uh, I'd packed in my job. The camper van was all packed up. And we we're all ready to go on the boat the following morning. And they all came to my house at seven o'clock and they'd all basically chickened out and they weren't going anymore. Um, mm. So I so I had to cancel the trip. I couldn't really go by myself. And I was only a part owner of the vehicle. Um, so they wanted to get their money out of it. So I couldn't even go if I wanted to. So I had to start looking in the paper for a job. And I saw this advert that says become a financial advisor and earn twenty three thousand pounds a year, which I'd only been. You know, this was going back to. 1988 so i was actually only earning 120 pound a week at the time so that was like a major that was like mega wealth to me at that stage mm. so i went for the interview and got the job um which wasn't really that much of an achievement because in the life insurance industry at the time they they recruited people by the throw mud at the wall and see what sticks so i was actually taken on with 18 19 people and then what normally happens is three to six months later They've all left the industry because they've sold out all to all their family and friends. They don't know how to prospect. They don't know how to sell. So once they've gone through their friends and family, they can't sell anymore. So at the end of six months, I was the only one left. And I think that was probably more out of stupidity at the time because I was chronically bad at it. Um, the industry average at the time was £16,000 a year in sales and a sale a week, which is exactly what I was doing. I was doing, I was having 10 meetings a week and I was only selling one, one sale a week which I couldn't afford to really live off because, you know, and it was so bad that I used to have bags of food hung on my door handle because I had two little girls. I was being married a few short years. I had two little beautiful children and um, I basically couldn't afford to feed them. I mean, if it wasn't for that couch with never ending money down the back of the couch, I'm not quite sure what I would have done. But I, I decided I, I had a, I was so frustrated. Like I said, I was so ambitious, but I had such chronically low belief about myself. But I just physically couldn't afford to carry on in that vein whereby that I was just embarrassed because I was humiliated, you know, having food left on, on the doorstep. Technically, it was as a, as a man looking after a family. That's, you know, that's just it's just unspeakable. It's the embarrassment and humiliation of that. So I thought, right, OK, look, if I'm going to stay in this, I'm going to have to really get to the bottom of this. I can't afford to see 10 people a week and make one sale. So I analysed the 10 people a week I was seeing. And I realized that it was all down to the effects of the imposter syndrome and the belief I had in myself that was causing the problem because the underlying belief that I had was that I wasn't good enough. So I was terrified about meeting a prospect that knew more than me about what I did. So my antidote to that was to study all the product brochures and all the technical specifications. So when I go and sit down with the likes of yourself, I'd be quoting allocation rates. And which is OK, you should be using data as well, but not just data. But these were just pure data presentations, you know, um, whole of life term insurance, decreasing term insurance, convertible term insurance. And I'd go on like this for half an hour and say, OK, Jutinda, what do you like to do? And you'd say, well, I want to think about it because you had no idea what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. the, I, didn't, I didn't give you anything to make a decision on because I've just made you confused and your eyes were glazed over with little or no understanding of what I've just tried to put across to you. But it was just this lack of belief in imposter syndrome that was causing me to overcompensate with technical specifications and no real connect connection at all, just purely dumping data on people. So I looked at the when I got to the one sale I was making a week. I realized that I wasn't talking about data with those people at all. So I ran over the last several months and the one that had this, it was the same thing with every single client, nine heavy data presentations. And the one person I'd sold, it was a person, it was always a person I felt comfortable with, 
that mm -hmm. I didn't feel threatened by. And instead of, I didn't share any data with them at all. I told them stories. I told mm. them stories about how I knew somebody that was in the same position as then had a couple of young children and that um, he died without life insurance, the family lost the home and people could relate to that. You know, I'm telling mm. a story that's directly relatable to them because they could be that person tomorrow. Mm. You know? And uh, I've seen that happen so many times. So those people buy into the story. And there's a lot of stuff happening. There. It's just not the simplicity of the story. It was the emotional connection. It, it makes people feel something. Um, paints a picture for them it touches them on so many levels that they can relate to and they just they are when you do this with story and you connect with people emotionally they are just compelled to do what you're doing because it makes sense it's not hypnotism or anything it's just really the way we're supposed to communicate um, because we're taught in business that you know we're too sophisticated for that you know telling mm -hmm. stories we're taught that we're too sophisticated and that we've got to be data like we've all had been through death by PowerPoint presentations, <laughs> um, you know, where everyone's eyes are glazed over and we're taught this is the way to do business, but it isn't. It's good to do data. You have to do but data, but it should be interwoven with a story and, st and the principles of story. And that's what actually helps us. It, it's in their best interest. It's in our best interest. Mm -hmm. That's how we make our money. That's how we protect them. Or that's how they, they can get to enjoy the services that we offer. And hopefully all the services that anyone listening to this is offering someone is in their best interest. You know, mm. so it's it's really important. I, I'd say it's actually the secret weapon of communication now. Mm. As you know, I teach this ex extensively. So, so I've gone off a little bit of a point there. So just going through a bit further. So I was when I done when I realized what I was doing wrong, I stopped. I stopped it completely. And I just told stories to everybody. Mm. I gave them data, but I gave them I changed it to 70 percent storytelling and 30 percent data and figures and and technical aspects of a policy. And I started to sell um, eight out of 10 people. Oh, you know, so I went from one out of 10 to eight out of 10 just by changing the way I communicated with people. And something miraculous happened because this was the end of March. I did this, uh, this analysis of how I did business and I'd done nothing. You know, I'd probably earned about four thousand pounds by the end of March. That's gross. And mm -hmm. the, the tough thing about life insurance is that you get to pay the commission up front. But if it's cancelled within four years, you have to give the money back or a percentage oh. of it. So, so if you cancel the policy after 12 months and it's a four year commission period and I earned a thousand pounds, I'd have to pay back 750 pounds. Wow. So you can find yourself for months not getting paid. But as a result of, of how I changed my tack of doing business, I went from from that, the, you know, a typical stand industry standard of doing hardly anything to the top 1% in the world in nine months in the, in the last nine months from March till December, I became one of the top 1% in the world in the industry um, purely on, on what I've just shared with you. Mm -hmm. And I went from 16,000 a year to that year, I did 282,000 pounds gross commissions. And in the May of that year, as I've just, just chatted to you about before it came on in, in May, which was March is the second month of doing this. Uh, I did 80,313 pounds in gross commissions. Mm. which was about six years, seven years commissions based upon how I was doing business just two, eight weeks before. Mm. So that, that's how I, how I turned myself around. And that was my background in the life insurance industry. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So you just that one day thought, what am I doing wrong? And you just start analyzing what you were doing and just started not noticing this kind of pattern in, in that. And thought, let me just adjust this to see what happens if I start sharing stories with others 
and it actually worked. Oh, and it actually worked monumentally. I mean, the definition of, it, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting mm. a different result. You know, and I was aware that I was doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. And I thought, well, I, I physically, you see, I couldn't, it's not something I could ignore. I couldn't feed my family. Mm. You know, so I really had to get to the root of what my problem was. And and when I did that, it just, you know, the, you know, the inspiring thing about that is, you know, I'm not saying that to impress you. Um, I'm just saying to impress upon you, that's how fast we can change our lives. Mm. You know, we're doing, I've, I've got a friend, um, he just never gets any further on but he doesn't change anything that he does. He keeps doing the mm-hmm. same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you've got to, at some stage, you've got to say, look, I've either got to change what I'm doing or I've got to do something else. Mm. That's amazing. That's like, you know, looking for the things that work versus the things that weren't working. And just even to have the insight. And I suppose, like you said, the pressure of having to actually create that change because uh, you had to because of just, you know, every everything around you. But what's fascinating is how, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to chat to you because like everything you've learned, you've learned through the experience of it, right? It's not necessarily like, you know, you just went to a course and you studied it. This is, I know, we know we've known each other for a while now and I see, you know, when you share your wisdom with me, it's like, damn, this guy's actually like experienced this and studied and uncovered it himself. Um, that's why it's so like, what's the word, raw, real, um, you know? So, so... How, how, what, what did you, what was like the next step for you after that? Then, like, what, what did you find evolved even further? Well, what evolved me even further was, which, which happens quite a lot in, in, in other professions, I suppose, but definitely happens a lot in the life insurance industry. Uh, I came across an organization called the Million Dollar Round Table, which represents the top 5% of financial advisors in the world. And you had to earn 40,000 a year to qualify to go. So, my goal was to qualify. For for that before I was 30 and only 0.5% did. So that was actually, I thought that was quite a big goal for me at the time. And I qualified and I went, and then I realized that was only the starting point. There was three different tiers within the million dollar round table. There was something called court of the table, which was 150,000 a year. And then there was top of the table. That was 250,000 pounds a year plus. And I just sat there and I'd met some of these people and it was, and I was so into insurance and I was so, and I was such an evangelist because I knew how good it was for people and how, how it was really an essential part of their lives. Uh, I wanted to really help people as much as I could. So I met these guys that were running top of the table, these white ribbons across them. It said top of the table. I didn't have a ribbon because I was just a basic entrant, if you like. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, they told me about the top of the table, told me the top 1% and, and what you had to do to get there. And I just decided in that moment, I'm going to do top of the table, mm. um, you know, and that's what transformed me. But it wasn't what happened was my success in the life insurance industry led to me being asked by insurance companies to go and share my journey, my journey of success in the industry, especially mine, because it was so um, such a major change in such a short space of time. Mm. You know, people normally get there over decades you know, I just suddenly got there in nine months and that fascinated people. So companies used to start asking me to come and speech, speak. And um, and I remember somebody said to me, well, how much do you charge? And I've never had the concept of getting paid to speak before. And I just kind of I didn't I didn't have any words for that because I had no idea. I said, well, I don't know. I said, I've never charged. And they said, well, would you come and speak for us if we if we gave you two and a half thousand pounds? And I said, well, yeah, of course I was. You know, that was that was quite a lot of money. And um, but it wasn't just down to the money. I had a great passion for speaking. 
So when I started speaking for insurance companies, I, I, I suddenly copped on to the fact that I could help a lot more people by speaking than I could by doing one-to-one with anybody. Mm. Um, so I got this bug for helping people. I just seemed to have a gift for helping people. And I'd been studying self-help for a while. Um, and you mentioned that what I say to you is real and you think, oh, this guy's actually experienced it. Uh, I'll touch on that briefly because I had a lot of frustrating experiences with books and seminars uh, where people talk about a lot of things that sound great but don't work Mm. because they've read a lot of books and they've picked up this paragraph that sounds fantastic. Then they read another book and they take that paragraph and another paragraph out of another book and they stitch it all together for what sounds like the most unbelievable piece of information in the world. But it doesn't work because it's just been strung together. It's Mm. never been field tested. And uh, it doesn't work. So I spent thousands going across the other side of the world to go to seminars, get all fired up and come back home to things that didn't work. And I found most self-help books were like that as well. I found so I was because I was studying limiting beliefs because I knew I was full of them. And mm-hmm. I, I read hundreds of books on belief. And then I'd, I'd be waiting for them to teach me how to get rid of them and change them. And then I got to the end of the book and they never did. You know, mm-hmm. so and that was that was how. I developed what I've developed that we're going to come on to later purely for that reason. But I just, it's very frustrating. You know, people put their faith in a book and, and it's, you know, most of them unfortunately are just a repeat of every other book that you've read, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because it doesn't do do that industry much good. But then now and again, you find somebody that actually thinks outside the box has experienced something has lived it, used it and actually can be useful to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And you know what I find fascinating is like how that that kind of um, it's like you're going through stuff in life and then you hit something and then you've actually like spent the time to think, okay, well, how can I actually change what I'm doing to maneuver around this? Um, And that I find really fascinating. I mean, like, you know, when you said you started looking at, you know, what you were doing different and you found out that it was the people you're having conversations with but that was the people you felt comfortable with, right? So yeah. what shifted within you to talk to the people you felt uncomfortable with, but actually share stories with them? Like what, what went through your mind at that time? Well, it was actually, it came out of a desire to serve people, but I was a real evangelist with insurance because I actually, I really felt very strongly that they needed it, you know, and I had everything myself because I knew, I just believed in it. It's, I, I watched lives fall apart that didn't have it, you know, so I was really passionate about making sure that people had it and I just realized that just the way I was doing business with 90% of the people I was working with was actually a disservice to them Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually helping them in fact I was putting them at risk by not insuring them because I wasn't approaching them in the way that they needed to be approached in order to help them do what they needed to do Mm -hmm. yeah I mean that that's that's a fascinating what you shared there because you know with a lot of uh, people when I come across we chat to them and they're talking about sales and marketing and, you know, we hear this, that our people have this negative experience towards the word sales and all this kind of thing. And it's like, well, actually, when you shift that to actually serving and you shift that, you're not selling anything, you're actually serving people. It's like the whole dynamic of everything you do changes, right? Because it doesn't feel like you're trying to sell them. You actually are trying, genuinely trying to serve them now, you know, with something that's going to be useful for them, right? The hardest, the hardest part of my career was when I was trying to make sales. When you get into... Mm sales as a young man i was only 22 years of age all you're thinking about is getting the sale and putting money in your pocket that's your motivation all right but people have a sixth sense 
and they know that you know yeah. so they will you'll but they'll repel you you know which they should do right because if you're not it doesn't mean you're not working their best interest but your interests are coming before theirs if you know mm -hmm. and, um, i read a book by frank betcher once from the very first books i read self-help books if you like it's an insurance book and it was called how i raised myself from failure to success in selling oh i love that book yeah yeah <laughs> very first book i ever read and he's i read that at 22 years of age and he said if you help enough other people get what they want you can have everything you want mm. now that quote's been misrepresented as zig ziglar's quotes it's mm -hmm. like everybody ties that to zig ziglar but it was actually frank betcher that said it but i actually heard that you know like sometimes you hear something and yeah. you actually get it like you know and i just thought about that and it changed my focus from going to sell you something to get something for myself to getting you what you need and i'd be getting paid as a byproduct mm -hmm. and 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 moving from selling in that way made life a lot easier for me because i found it really stressful i found it really stressful to go into like what was some in some degree a confrontational experience for both of us because i'm trying to get them to buy something and they're trying to resist buying it um this wasn't for very long by the way um but when you know i actually got to a stage where i felt i was sitting on the same side of the table as them so instead of sitting in an adversarial position trying to get them to buy something, I would be the expert sitting on the same side of the table as you. And we're looking out at the world together about which of the companies the best for you, what offers the best. And I'd say, well, this is what I'd do. And then they'd say, OK, we'll go for that. And then I put it together for them. So mm -hmm. I, I stopped selling. You know, the most I ever sold was when I actually stopped selling. Wow. You know, I just put my heart and soul into the person I was working with. And um, it was fantastic because if I, I sometimes because I people in the end which was really nice the best compliment I think I ever had was um I used to talk very simply to people you know I didn't I learned how to speak make the complicated simple and I remember one guy just looked at me and smiled he says that's the only first time in my life I've ever understood the concept of life insurance he says mm. thank you because it was so simple and easy to understand um that it just made it easy for people to do it yeah 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 you know? yeah that's that's just brilliant. That's like you know, Bruce Lee pops to mind. They just change or play on his words with it. it's the art of selling without selling, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it is that, you know. I mean, you know, the thing is as well, everyone's adverse to salespeople, but at the same time, everybody is a salesperson. We're selling, even if you've got a job, you're selling yourself exactly. to your employer to keep you in that job exactly. every day that you're there. You know, if you yep. start messing about or, or not putting your time in and not doing the job properly, you're gone. So you've got to sell yourself every single day and it's the same it's exactly the same thing you just don't see it that way um you know sales is is what keeps the world going you yeah. know everything because it enables everything else that's everything right that comes before, the production uh the marketing everything it that's the end result and yeah if you haven't got the end if you're not doing the end end activity properly then everything else falls like a stack of dominoes beforehand but it's the way that you sell i mean i think it's because you know no one wants to go to you know, like a pushy used car sales and all that kind of thing. It makes everybody feel uncomfortable. It's not what anybody wants. I don't want it, you know. Um, but when you get people that are passionate about what they're doing and they believe in what they're doing from the core of their being, you know, the real selling is done in the intention behind what you're saying mm -hmm. and what you're doing, okay? So yep. you feel that intention from me. And then you talk about rapport before. Well, then you develop rapport only when you that's in fact if you're asking me again what i think by rapport you develop rapport only when you feel comfortable with somebody to engage with them yeah. that's when rapport comes through trust 
through trust. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if you don't have trust in someone, what are you going to do with them? Mm. You're not going to do anything, are you? Because, you know, why would you do anything with somebody you don't trust or, you, or you're not sure about their intentions? Mm. You know, and that, that transfers, you know, so if we, instead of trying to sell people all the time, if we look at what we've got and how it will make their life better and show them, preferably in the form of a story, yeah, then they're going to see it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's a, one thing I learned very early on. People buy with emotion and justify with fact. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everything's emotional. Everything's about connecting with people on an emotional level. Yeah. You know, that's wow. how, because that's how we're moved. Exactly. Exactly. Don't, so you mentioned earlier a little bit about um, imposter syndrome, and that's something a lot of people bring up. I mean, sh share a bit about that, because at some stage you felt like an imposter type of thing but then that changed right yeah yeah share a bit about that well imposter syndrome is an interesting thing because everybody has it to some degree and everybody experiences it significantly at least once in their life you know um, for me the challenge was the fact that i i had it every single day you know without a break and it's a very painful thing you know when you when you've got imposter syndrome you don't feel that you've ever achieved anything under your own reasons to be successful or do well you know it's it's mm -hmm. nothing it's just a fluke by the way uh when i used to race motorcycles because I, I, when i was i started racing dirt bikes when i was 12 years of age um which i bought my bike i should do three paper rounds to get this old dirt bike that i bought and then i and i because i used to visit the abuse i went through i used to visualize all the time i used to visualize every single night before i went to sleep and see myself racing and smelling the smell of the oil at the event and all of that and unbeknownst to me i was programming my subconscious mm -hmm. mind and I'll tell you a really odd thing. Um, at my very first motocross meeting, Scrambles it was called at the time, I was 12 yeah. years of age, and I'd never been in a race before in my life. And I was racing, and I was really confused. I'm racing around the track in a state of confusion. And um, and I was thinking, What's, what is it? What's going on here? You know, I was only 12, by the way, you know. And, um, and, I was, and what I was thinking, I've been here before. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and... I was I was leading like there was no motorcycles anywhere near me. I was way out in front. I was winning the race and I couldn't work it out. I thought, what's going on here? I thought, and I thought sort of myself, I've been here before. And of course, I've been there before a thousand times in my mind. And every time I visualized at nighttime, I was, you know, I don't visualize myself at the back of the pack coming last. Obviously, I used to visualize myself winning races. So yeah. that when I made that first starting line, I'd been on that starting line a thousand times. And I used yeah. to, before I was too young to race, I used to walk to that track and I used to walk around it and I used to imagine how I'd go around the corners wow. and how I'd go across the jumps. And I'd walk it hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, you know, mm -hmm. as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy. By the time I raced at 12, I'd walk that track thousands of times and I'd visualized it thousands of times. And then, so that, you know, that is, but but the answer, what, but the, extending from that, what we've discussed, what's that going to do with imposter syndrome? Okay, now I... Every time I won lots of races, and I, this is what used to happen. I used to think, well, it was only because everybody else was having a bad day, oh. or, everybody, or everybody else must have fallen off. And the time that actually were one of the worst things, my friends took me to a fish and chip shop to buy me fish and chips to celebrate my victories because they were all really into it with me, and they loved seeing me win. And they bought me fish and chips and, and a can of Coke. And I remember choking on the fish. Right because I felt like I was deceiving them by taking their 
present to me for winning because I wasn't really a winner. I was winning because everyone else was having a bad day um, because they weren't feeling very well. It was never because I was the best because mm -hmm. in my mind I was nothing. So even though I'd managed to change my results by visualizing, I actually hadn't changed that part of my inner game about on the belief side. I still didn't believe in myself. So you mm -hmm. kind of think, well, that's kind of a contradiction in terms. I'm winning races, but I don't believe in myself. How can that be true? Um, well, because I was visualizing winning, but I mm -hmm. hadn't dealt with the, with the belief side of things yet. Because I didn't under, I was, you know, I was so young, I didn't understand it. But that visualization, we've spoken about this many, many times, is such a powerful tool. Yeah. You know, I beat cancer with visualization. You mm. know, um, and I, I tell you something really, really strange, uh, which we weren't going to talk about this, but I'll touch on it very briefly with you. Um, my wife and I were watching a series called Brothers and Sisters, mm -hmm. and it's about five series long, and there's 24 episodes in each one. But for some reason, the last series disappeared and we never got to watch it so we found it on disney channel the other night and um, we just started watching it again and calista flockhart who used to be well, buffy's vampire slayer or whatever it was i don't remember she was married to rob lowe who was running for government and then she found out she had cancer but in the series she had the exact cancer i had large diffuse b-cell lymphoma and right. she was stage three which is what i was so they'd really researched this the producers because but they actually picked an illness, which was there's like hundreds of different versions of it. But they picked the exact one that I had. Right. And then they were talking about a treatment was the exact treatment I had. And I started to weep because it took me straight back there again. Um, but, I, you know, one thing I never did at the time was I never Googled the illness. Right. I never Googled the prognosis of the illness because, you know, I'm, I'm a mindset speaker and a mindset coach. And, I you know, beliefs is my thing now, you know. Um, I'm very successful about helping people changing their beliefs and companies and what have you, but that's my thing now. So at the time I didn't want to put, you know, if I looked at something and it said life expectancy, 12 months, mm. you know, and I said, because people believe what they see in print. So if I saw that in print, I didn't want to see that in print, yeah. you know, my visualization of me getting better. I used to visualize nights on white charges, charging through my cancer, my cells, because I had blood cancer, my, my veins and skewing the cancer cells. Now I'd feel euphoria in my body. But after watching that the other night, I decided to Google it because mm -hmm. I was misdiagnosed for 14 months. Right. It was 14 months before I was discovered. Uh, once the first time diagnosed, misdiagnosed by my doctor, who just kept telling me I was stressed all the time, even though I was lost three stone in weight and multiple other things, which were just so obviously cancer. And then when I went to, I got them to send me for a scan and then they scanned me and they, well, they actually scanned my testicles because I had an ache there. And um, I said, am I OK? Because, you know, you always push for a result mm -hmm. while you're there because you're nervous. And she says, oh, you're absolutely fine. The scan just shows increased heat in the area. That means infection. And they gave me a six month course of antibiotics. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't an infection. I had I had cancer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I went back home. I had a gut feeling told me something was wrong. So I started looking on the Internet and I found uh, a chap that had the same symptoms as me. But he but it didn't help me. He just had the same symptoms, no solutions. And I was just about to leave the computer and I was just about to press the escape. And I was about an inch away. And then a doctor answered, which saved my life. He said, I don't like right. the look of this. He says, go to A&E. Don't tell them you've been diagnosed with something else. Or I think you're a hypochondriac. Represent the symptoms, which is what I did. And uh, a junior doctor, about 25 years old, felt my groin and everything, said, your lymph nodes are up. I don't like this. I'm going to get an oncology surgeon. I had no idea mm -hmm. who, who told me I had cancer. I had cancer for 14 months 
already. Wow. Okay. Now going back to this series that I watched with my wife last week, and we just happened to start it in that moment where she was diagnosed and I Googled it and I put in how long can someone survive with lymphoma without being diagnosed? And it said, no one survives more than 12 months. Wow. And I was 14 months before it was discovered and another two months before I got treated. So I was 16 months before I had any treatment and I should never have lived. Now, can you imagine if I'd have seen that at the time, wow. you know, what that would have done to my mind. So, you mm. know, I was visualizing without this information that would have been destructive for me. Um, so, you know, as far as imposter syndrome is concerned, the visualization was a key thing for me. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's, it's just very powerful. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you shared some real insights there about intention, the level of detail you go into to visualize this stuff as well. I mean, and then you shared your story about, you know, that. And is that the time around when you wrote your first book? No, that was, I, I mean, well, when I first told you about the, the, um, on the start, on the starting line of the dirt bike racing, was, I was 12, I'm 58 now. So that's, I don't even dread to think how far long ago that is. I can't even work it out. It's so far. Um, but that's when I, I was, I was using visualization from about 10 years of age, mostly to get over the abuse that I was through, because what I used to do was go to bed at six o'clock every night to get rid of the days mm. on, because I had this thing in my head that everything would be okay when I got to 20. Right. So I used to go to bed as early as possible to get another day closer to being 20. Oh, and that's wow. when I started visualizing. So I'd go to bed at half six and I'd be bored out of my brains. So then I'd just go into my imagination and I'd, and I'd imagine the future. So I'd imagine this beautiful woman lying in, in the bed with two little a child next to her and another little baby in a cot. And that was my family in the future. And mm -hmm. I used to visualize that every night. And then um, one day, in, one day, many years later, I mean, it's, I used to visualize that from about the age 11 to about 18 when my parents finally got divorced. Just didn't think about it again. Never thought about that vision again, which I did every day. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was 30 years of age and I was trying to sell life insurance to two aging hippies um, who are smoking joints, smoking hash. <laughs> and um, and because they're so laid back, it's going on forever, this meeting. Normally, I would have got irritated, but in the sea of smoke, I felt really relaxed and chilled, and I've no idea why that would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I eventually made the sale, and I got home at midnight, and um, I was getting changed in the bathroom, so I didn't wake my young family up because we all slept in the same bedroom. Um, and then I guess to go back slightly. When I was visualizing this from the age of 12, I used to, I used to see her and the children in, this, in the bedroom, in the bed and in the cot, but the room was bathed in an orange glow in mm -hmm. the vision I had from that young age. Why an orange glow? I have no idea. But I used to, just used to imagine this room bathed in an orange glow. So I got changed in the bathroom so I wouldn't wake anybody up. And as I opened the bedroom door, uh, I just felt like I'd been hit in the chest with a brick. And I, my breathing went really shallow. And I started to sweat. And then I started to weep. And I was just standing in the room looking at them. I mean, what's wrong with me? Am I having some kind of a breakdown? And what had happened was... My wife had been out that day and bought a soft glowing orange lamp oh. to have on in the bedroom so that I wouldn't come in and kick the cot and kick the bed and wake everybody up, which is what I usually did because you couldn't <laughs> see the door and I couldn't see anything. And so I had stood there in the doorway looking at them. My wife was lying in the bed. My older daughter was about two and a half at the time was lying next to her with her arms flailed above her head. Mm -hmm. And next to her was in the cot was my newborn baby, a little girl with a little tuft of hair on top. And the room was bathed in an orange glow. 
Wow. But it wasn't similar to the vision that I had every day from the age of about nine or 10. It was exactly the same, you know. Right. And, you know, and, and I was so moved by that, you know, and I really got to understand the magnitude of the power of visualization. And I suddenly became aware of how I'd used it all the way through my life and how anything I'd got out of life was because I visualized it happening, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but not once. It doesn't work when you do it just once. You know, I did it repeatedly every single day. And mm-hmm. it was such a powerful force in my life. It was unbelievable. And it, you know, and ultimately it saved my life. So, you know, the abuse I went through, I'm actually grateful for now mm-hmm. because pushed me to learn things and do things it, it you know, taught, taught me to well it didn't teach me my goal was to survive because I had three attempts on my life by the time I was 20 years of age mm-hmm. one of them was by my father um, so you know I just you know the vision you know it got me through everything it, it got me through everything so I was evoking tools to survive mm-hmm. creating them I wasn't creating them I was tapping into things functions of the mind because visualization is just a function of the mind yeah, yeah, we don't know anything. Most people don't know anything about. We know mm. we imagine. We use our imaginations as children, but by the time we get to school, they knock it out of us. You mm. know, all you hear is get your head out the clouds, get out of my classroom if you're not going to concentrate, and they stop that. It's knocked out of you. So by the time you reach secondary school, you don't use your imagination at all. Mm. You know, but you're actually what you should be doing is fostering that because that's where your creativity comes from. Yeah, yeah. And that's why so many people struggle with create creativity because the education system has knocked it out of them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then when did your first book come about? Well, I wrote my first book in 2018, An Unbreakable Spirit. Um, I'd been talking about writing that book for probably 20 years. And it was in, it, that came about really the writing of it, an embarrassing moment because I, to get some accountability, I'd said to my family, new year's eve the year before i'm going to have my book written by easter and my oldest daughter was her dream had always been i'd always been putting into my children you can be whatever you want and from the age of four my oldest daughter said she wanted to be a paris showgirl and she was actually a paris showgirl at the time so we'd driven down to paris to see her for mother's day with my wife and my mum came with us so we we're all having dinner in the eiffel tower and then quite innocently my daughter says to me she says how's the book coming along dad really expectantly and i hadn't started it right <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm supposed to have it done by now and i realized god am i going to really go through life like this and um so i went home i actually wasn't even thinking about it i was sitting with the laptop on my lap yeah and it and i just started typing mm. and mm. Uh, there's no intention i hadn't written an outline to the book or anything i just but it, i didn't really need to write an outline because all i needed to do was go into my imagination go back to four years of age and because i was so such a visualizer because i visualize all my life it's something that i'm just naturally into the way i work i just Mm -hmm. went to my imagination and i put myself at a certain when i was four years old and i visualized being there and then i just walked back through my life right and as i walked through my life i typed it right 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 and at at the time i'd only just beaten cancer Mm -hmm. um so i and because i was such a late diagnosis i had to have something called intrathecal chemotherapy which is horrendous you go partially blind for two out of three weeks your sight comes back in the third week and then on the fourth week you go and start it again and do that every single month for six months so i spent most of that not being able to see in projectile vomiting um so when i 
started writing it affected my memory because the intrathecal is in the spine so they drain your spine some spinal fluid out and replace it with chemotherapy right because um, it's the epilepsy blood cancer the only way you can protect the brain from a tumor is by going up the spinal cord because chemotherapy won't penetrate the protective mm -hmm. layer of the brain right. which makes sense but it affected my memory really badly so when i wrote the book i couldn't take ages to write it because I just have to read everything from scratch every single time I picked it up to start because I wouldn't remember. So the only antidote to that was just write it nonstop. Right, so I, wrote, right, right. I wrote the book in 30 days. Okay. Uh, I had one day, I remember it was a Wednesday, I wrote three chapters. I started writing at half past six in the morning, finished at 10 o'clock at night. I'd written three chapters and 17 and a half thousand words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it just, and I needed to do that so that I didn't repeat myself. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the book's been really well received. I mean, it's been really well received. It's done really, really well, and it's and it's helped a lot of people as well, which is fantastic. Which was really the purpose of the book. People used to say to me, "Is it a cathartic exercise? You know, does it help you rid yourself of all those things that happen to you?" Well, it wasn't really. It wasn't really cathartic for me at all because in my mind, I dealt with that a long time before. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm sure at some level it did did help me and was useful in some way, but. It wasn't necessary and it wasn't for that purpose that I wrote it. It was really mm. turned out to be a book on resilience and mindset is what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like you say before, well, this guy's experienced it. That's why I find what he says to me so interesting. But that's exactly what it was. Mm. It was it was experience, you know, I'm yeah. showing my experience, but it, it was real world experiences. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. And then now you currently, you know, just got you've just finished doing um, the imprint phenomena, which is another really interesting uh, book because you've also invented something like this really belief, really good belief bracelet, right? Let, let's talk a bit about that. Like, how did that yeah. come about, and what does that do? Well, do you know what? You know, bearing just go back slightly to remember, I had chronically low levels of self belief, so I had no belief in myself whatsoever, which was a curse for me when I got into the life insurance industry. And as you know, we've, we've covered, I had these two little girls. Now, I knew at a subconscious level that belief, self-belief was the most important thing. I knew that self-belief was the driving force in our lives. You know, I knew it. And we all know it, by the way. Subconsciously, we know that's the truth because every, all of us have had said to us at some stage in our lives, well, you just need to believe in yourself. You know, mm. we've said we're having a bit of a challenge with this and I really want to do this. And I'm not sure how to do it. And somebody always said to us, you just need to believe in yourself. And then you immediately felt you remember this yourself. And anybody listening to this would have had this experiences that when you were told you just needed to believe in yourself, we felt this sense of euphoria fill our body. And we go, yes, yes, because we know inside that we need to believe in ourselves. It makes perfect sense. That's why we get so excited. But the trouble is no one knows how to do it. And so, you know, I remember people saying to me all through my life growing up, you just need to believe in yourself, Mark. And I'd say, yes, yes, that's fantastic. I know that's what I need to do. How do I do that? Mm. And then I'd just be met with this blank stare. And people say, well, I don't know. But I just know that you do. And I said, well, I know that I do as well. But I just don't know how to do it. <laughs> and no one ever knew. And I was the bracelet came about from this because I was sitting. I just read my little girls, their bedtime story. So, you know, they're very young, you know, they're preschool. Well, one's preschool, one's just started primary school. And um, I'm reading them their bedtime story. And I sat there and I was actually quite distressed because I was, I had no self, at that stage of my life, I had no self-belief whatsoever. I knew self-belief was the most important thing in the world. And I knew that above everything else, 
my children need to believe in themselves. But I couldn't do it for them. I couldn't teach them how to believe in themselves because I just didn't know at that stage how they could do that. There's obviously more to it than just a bracelet. But yeah. what with the bracelet, I'll, I'll just cover that side of it. So I found myself asking myself a question. My children were in these bunk beds. So they're little things in their bunk beds. I've just read them a story. I'm sitting in the chair and I'm just looking at their little innocent faces lying on the pillows. And I got so upset because I thought these children need to learn how to believe in themselves. I can't do it for them. I've actually brought two children in the world that I can't serve. I can't teach them how to believe. And it really, really got to me. And then just out of nowhere, I asked myself this question. I wonder if there's a physical way to get people to believe in themselves, mm. you know, which is really a ridiculous question when you think about it. You know, it's a ridiculous question, but great things come from ridiculous questions. Yeah. And I just fell asleep in the in the rocking chair and I had this dream and I had this dream about this little girl who was struggling with maths at school. And her father asked her what was the matter. And uh, she says, oh, I'm no good at maths, daddy. The teacher says I'm the worst in the class. And she says, if I don't buck up my ideas, she's going to send me out and let me do something else in the hallway or read a book because she doesn't want me in a classroom where I can't do anything, which was horrendous for a teacher to say that. This mm-hmm. was just a dream, by the way, you know, um, but that's but, but a horrendous thing to be said. So her father said, right, we're going on a trip in the morning. And they flew to India where he in the village where he grew up in. And they climbed up this mountain. It wasn't like a mountain. It was more like a big hill. There's a meandering hill to the when they got to the top, there was a cave. And they called out and this little tiny man came out with long gray hair down to his belly button and a little loincloth. And they hugged each other because he remembered the man from when he was a little boy and they invited him into the cave. And as they sat down, the father began to t- talk about his daughter's problems. that He didn't believe in herself. And, and the old wise man listened and he went, picked up this box in the hole in the wall of the cave. And he came down, sat it down and he brushed all the dust off it and he opened it up. And there was a shiny bracelet inside. And he went and gave it to the little girl and she put it on her wrist. And in the background, you know, that you watch a film, uh, you watch the Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, where he built that baseball field. Mm -hmm. And he kept hearing the voice saying, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Yeah? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Well, in my head, in my dream, that was happening, but with different words. And it was and the voice that was like a ghost in the background of this story that's unfolding in my dream was. It's all in the words but you must impress the words. Wow. And it kept saying it, the kiss's voice kept saying, it's all in the words, but you must impress the words. And I just remember in my dream thinking, what the hell does that mean? It's all mm-hmm. in the words, but you must impress the words. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And then the dream moved on a little bit and he got, took the bracelet and it's on the little girl's wrist now. And he said to her, press that bracelet down in the middle and hold it for 10 seconds, which she did. And then she just removed her finger and just sat there looking at the old man. And he said, now move the bracelet away from that spot and reveal what's underneath the bracelet. And she looked down and the word belief was in her wrist. As like imprinted in the skin, pressed into the skin. And he said, what does that word say to the little girl? And she said, it says belief, sir. And he said, where is the belief? And she said, it's on my skin, sir. And he said, no, no, no. He said, the belief's not on you. The belief is in you. Mm. that's all you ever needed to have was the belief within you he says now you can do maths and you know and then um, and then there was an earthquake in the dream and the cave started to shake and it wasn't really an earthquake what it was it was my wife shaking me awake (laughs) (laughs) so i woke up and i'm having this wonderful dream 
you know, which I, which, and I woke up and I, and, but you know what it's like when you've had a dream, you can't remember anything about it. Yeah. And I was so, I, I kept trying to like, I was getting headaches. It's like I was trying to pull the dream back into my consciousness and I couldn't find it. I couldn't remember anything about it. And then the following evening at um, dinner time, we're sitting down with my daughter and my oldest daughter who's just like in her first year of school looking really glum. And my wife says, what's the matter with you today? You're not your usual self. And she says, I can't do maths. She says, teacher told wow. me I'm the worst in the class. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and as soon as she said that, the whole dream came back to me yeah. and I got goosebumps all over my arm. I'm getting them now. Every time I tell the story, I get goosebumps. So I, I, so I went to my wife and I said, do you have an old bangle? So she found this old bangle for me. And I went to my shed in the garden. Yeah. which was full of brand new boxes of do-it-yourself drills and things because everyone bought me do-it-yourself stuff, which I was never any good at and never wanted to touch. So it looked like a robbery from a DIY store. There's all these things in boxes. I've never <laughs> and I cut these little um, belief, this word believe out of le metal letters, out of what, out of a mold that I had for fishing weights. I used lead and just made it to raise these letters. And I stuck them on the inside of the bracelet. This was in the mm -hmm. days where super glue actually worked. Do you remember? It doesn't work anymore, but it was actually when it worked. So it took me about a day just to get them to stick inside without coming off of my fingers and like that. And I and I put it in my pocket that evening in my pajamas, and I and I wrote down the story that day of what I've just told you about the wise man in the cave and the little girl who couldn't do mass. And I told her the story. Uh, well, both of the children the story, but pref but aimed at the daughter that was having trouble with the math. And uh, she was sitting there listening intently. She was so involved because we do with stories. We're wired for story. Like, you know, yeah. so I've actually been furnished with a story to go with this. And I read the story to her. She said, and she, I'll never forget it. She said, she looked a bit glum again. And she said, oh, daddy, she says, I'd love it. And I, you know, I didn't have a name for this at the time. And she says, oh, my, oh, daddy. She said, I'd love a magic bracelet like that. And, um, and I said, well, I said, I've got it for you. I took it out my pajama pocket and I put it on her wrist and um I said it's yours now she says it's the only one in the world which it was because yeah. I invented it that day and she put it on her wrist she goes oh and she pressed it down and she pulled it back and the word belief was on there wow and I said and I said to her where's the belief and she says and she smiled because she knew the story and she says yeah. the belief was in me dad wow <laughs> you know wow. so so far that you know this is 25 years ago and I did nothing. I did nothing with it. I kind of, you know, um, I used the the tool with them and it changed them. I mean, my mm -hmm. daughter went from not being able to do maths to the top quarter of the class to having a top job in HSBC Bank in, as an investor, investor, yeah. investment specialist. You know, wow. from a little girl that couldn't do maths. But um, but I did nothing with it, Jatinda. And um, during lockdown, both my daughters had moved out. One went to work. She went to work in Dubai. Uh, my other daughter got married and they bought a house. So we thought we'd sort the house out during lockdown. And I um, I was sorting out under my daughter's bed and I just caught my eye and this bracelet was sticking out the top of a box in her bed. And I pulled it out and I just remembered the story and I got goosebumps again. You know, yeah. I remembered yeah. what happened that night and how it changed her life, you know, because and I thought, okay, I'm going to do something with this now. And it was locked down, so I wasn't allowed to work. We weren't allowed to do anything. So I invented the bracelet. I actually created the bracelet, which took about a year because I had to design it, send it off, get someone to design it and manufacture it. Then it would come back 
the words weren't long enough to make an impression. Then they'd come back too sharp and they'd cut you. Then they'd have to wait another three months because it was a three-month turnaround every single time. Mm. And then the third time it actually did work, they put letters on back to front so you couldn't mm. read it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all these challenges that we face. Uh, why is I'm waiting for that? I've, I've written the book, The Imprint yeah. Phenomenon, which um, teaches you how to change beliefs and how to use the bracelet. I'd written the Fast Start Guide. I'd created a, uh, a coin, a special coin you use to do exercises in the book um, as well. And I'd also created this beautiful box of affirmation cards, which are about 40 of the most powerful affirmations in the world, some of them which I'd written as well. But mm-hmm. you do the bracelet, you press the bracelet, you see the word believe, and then you pick up an affirmation card that said, one of them, for example, would say, um, now that belief is within me, I can do this. But mm. the blank is at the end. You put in whatever you're having the challenge with. Right. But, the, you know, we've we've chatted about this a lot, you know, and there's a lot more to this than just a bracelet that makes an imprint. You know, yep. there's a, a yep. lot of psychology in that. And psychologists are actually, a lot of psychologists are actually using it now as an intervention tool with their clients. Right. Um, the first bit of psychologist that came across it, which I told you about, she was blown away by this. She said, I can't believe somebody's made a physical tool to yeah. change beliefs. And she uses it very successfully with her clients. But, um, you know, it's what, I, what, what I've done with this is because 95% of what you and I and everybody listening believes was created within them by the time they were seven years of age. Mm. It's called the imprint period. That's why the book is called the imprint phenomenon. And I call this yep. the imprint bracelet or yep. magic bracelet for children. And it works with adults just as, just as well. Um, because, um, you know, with the aff- affirmations, using it with that, it's you're, you give yourself a tool to work with. Now, as I said, 95% of your, of your beliefs are in you by the time, you're seven years of age, the imprint period from birth to seven. And you remember the quote from Aristotle, if you give me the child at birth, I'll mm. return the man to you at seven. All mm. right. We were talking before we came on air today about cliches and how they don't, we don't actually understand them or we don't think about them because we've heard them so many times. They mean nothing. Yeah. yeah? And that's one of those quotes. You hear that and you think that's a cool quote, but you don't think anything more. It's such a significant quote because it's the yeah. truth. You know, yeah. what he was talking about was he understood how to create beliefs in children and how significant those first seven years were. Now, mm. you know, my first seven years were being told I was nothing and I'd never be anything and no one would ever want me. So you can see where my challenges came from mm. because that once you accept something, if, because if it's an authority figure, a parent or teacher says yeah. something to you, you accept it as the truth. Okay. Once you accept it as the truth, it becomes a belief. Once it becomes a belief, it comes, becomes the driving force in your life. But the trouble is, unless you're fortunate to have psychologists as parents, which only a very small people do, they know what the imprint period is, but no one else does. Mm. So we're just instilling beliefs within our children, good and bad, carelessly saying things that we're not, we don't comprehend the ramifications of our words. Because those little brains, those spongy little brains are accepting everything you say as the truth. Mm. And once they accept it as the truth, it becomes a belief. Once it becomes a belief it becomes a driving force in their lives so what the most significant part of what i've done here is i've made something which is a subconscious act and i've brought it into conscious awareness for everybody so then people read the book and they know they now they understand how significant this period of time is for their child you know i'd say up to 10 years of age before they go to secondary school because that's when the influence really changes but um when you know so when you're doing this w- with children, consciously aware of it, 
and you're going through the affirmations with them, you're actually doing something together consciously and you're consciously instilling limiting beliefs. Oh, sorry, not limiting beliefs, but empowering beliefs yeah. that will change the course of their lives. Wow. That's amazing. Well, okay, you know what? People probably, if they're listening, they love, like, where can I get one from? Where can I get one from? You know, if they are interested, what's the best thing for them to do? Well, the, the most, the simplest route is through the web website. It's uh, www.thebeliefdoctor, all one word, thebeliefdoctor, and then .net, and then forward slash get belief. So mm. www.thebeliefdoctor.net forward slash get belief. So if they go there, that will take you to a page that, that tells them all about it. Mm, and there's a little video on there as well, which shows how it works, which I think, check it out definitely, because I think it's an amazing product. You know, I, you know it, it's you know it's the best thing that i've ever done it's mm-hmm. you know anything i've learned anything i've it's the best thing because it's made make, it makes everyone consciously aware of the significance of beliefs in their own lives as adults because it helps them change the limiting beliefs they've got and more importantly even and not more importantly but children that have no beliefs because we're born with zero beliefs until it's put into us you know, but it actually teaches people how to make empowering beliefs and be consciously aware of what they're saying. Mm. Uh, and that's really significant because the average child hears the word no 400 times a day. Mm. That's about 14,000, 12,000 times a month. And it's 144,000 times a year. So that's if you crazy. hear, and that sounds like ridiculous, but like, remember, like you'd be saying, you won't say no once you go, no, 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 you can't do that. Mm. You know, so it just adds up. Mm. And when you hear no all the time, you think the world isn't for you. Mm. you know and you and as you get older and become an adult the word no changes into i can't wow so you don't do it so it transmutes to that so the impact of that what you had through your childhood told to you goes on to impact your life in a different ways that's why we're walking around um not achieving what we want to achieve it's got nothing to do with it's not possible for us mm-hmm. we just don't believe it's true for us we believe it we believed it wasn't true because of something we've heard as a child it became true for us and now it's a driving force in our life but it's driving us down the wrong path mm. that reminds me of that quote by napoleon hill right the one that he says um wherever the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve well that's right? exactly the truth yeah you know, but you have to believe it first yeah, you know, yeah. people, a lot of people, philosophers say to you and um, something and, you know, a lot of speakers and a lot of people with great wisdom say to you, thought precedes everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's actually only partly true mm-hmm. because thought does precede everything in the beginning until a belief is created. Mm-hmm. But once you have the belief, the belief drives what you think. Mm-hmm. So once you believe you're not up to up to the task. What are your thoughts going to be? Mm, exactly. Well, the story related to that, right? Yeah, because that's mm. what you believe. So you're going to act out the belief. It becomes a script for your life. You know, yeah. so so the thought does come first, but only until a belief is made. Then the belief takes over and drives the thoughts that you have. Mm. You know, which which is a car crash for most people. Because, mm. you know, you know, as well meaning as your parents are, they didn't understand this. Mm-hmm. you know and we all get tired and we all get frustrated and we all say things we shouldn't say um i mean some of us have it to the extreme like i did but you know but it doesn't have to be to the extreme like like i had it it could mm-hmm. be just you know people are tired and uh, they've got too much on their plate so you know you, you you're just saying no all the time or 
you're just putting beliefs in or they hear things like um uh, you might hear money's the root of all evil or or you might have hear things about of oh, because you're dealing with your parents the most expensive time of their life with young children and they've got no money so they the, what's predominantly on their mind then is the fact they've got no money what do they talk about how little money they have mm -hmm. okay so you go through your childhood listening to um lack statements about money which gives you a limiting belief about money and then wonder why you have money issues when you become an adult you know mm. everything affects everything else everything counts to tinder you know mm. so you know talking about the bracelet this is a way to change all of that yeah it's, it's so it, i didn't even realize how significant it was till i finished all of this because it started off as just a bracelet to help my children but then i understood the psychology of what i'd actually done yeah and I've made the unconscious conscious. Mm. You constantly now choose the beliefs that you have or create in a child or for yourself. Yeah. You know, and that is the pivotal point. You know, the, the bracelets are cool, but it's the psychology behind it that makes it work as a tool. You know, I, I think it's it's going to be one of the biggest self-help tools ever, you know, and, uh, and I hope so, not just because of how wonderful that would be for me, but for how wonderful it will be for anybody that comes to use it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, just hearing that, I'm sure parents out there, people hear, no, even just parents, but anybody comes across it, be like, that sounds good. I mean, I think it's brilliant. I've seen the thing, right? And um, I'm like, this is this is totally amazing. And do you know what? I wish you all the, all the luck with that. And um, let's get it out there, man. Let's get it out there, right? <laughs> and no, Mark, you know what? It's 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 been brilliant. I mean, I'm what I'm taking away from all of this is um, you know, the the power of story and how you can use story to connect with audiences. I mean, because you've shared everything through story, and I was like engaged and like intrigued and pulled in. And it, you know, like you said, it, it's your intention behind it, it builds trust, you know, it builds credibility. You actually learn and relate from it. It it takes the human mind to such a deep space. Um, and I think that's a a fantastic place to be and you know i'd like to chat to you forever because you know you're sharing some brilliant wisdom i mean is there any last words you want to share before we sign off today um the only thing i, I hope that people take from this interview that we've done today that anything is possible for them I, what i don't you know we hear that quote um 90 of people even more go to their grave with their music to lend them mm -hmm. you know, my mission is to make that different for people it's i'm not even doing it for them they do it for themselves ultimately we're driving the car you know mm -hmm. but i would love people to to embrace this and use it on themselves and if their children if they have any and and the psychology that goes with it and read the book because it will transform your life and i just want people's lives to be transformed you know i love people i love to see people succeed i see so many people living a life of lack and it's purely down to the beliefs that they hold but the life that they desire, okay, and I really want people to hear this, the life that you desire is just on the other side of your current beliefs. Mm. Just on the other side of your current beliefs. Wow. And all you need to do is to bridge that from where you are to where you want to be is change the beliefs that you have. Wow. And this will help you do that, you know. And that's it. You know, we're, we're on one side of a glass wall where what we want's on the other side and we don't know how to break through it. It's mm. that it really when you understand the concept, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. But most people never learn it. And they just it's so it's you know, it's just horrendously sad mm -hmm. um, because we're, we're capable of so much. We're capable of so much. 
you know, I had a, my motto for my children growing up was, um, don't just dream it, be it. Mm. So they still say it today, but don't just dream it, be it. And the way to be it is to change the beliefs that you hold about yourself. And that's the door that opens. The, that's the key that opens the door to potential for you. Wow. And um, thanks, Mark. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best thing for them to do? Uh, they can e- email me at info at thebeliefdoctor.net uh, or go to the website, thebeliefdoctor.net. But I mean, I'm, I, I take emails of anybody that wants to write to me about this. So info at thebeliefdoctor.net. I'd happily receive you. I reply to everybody. Um, so anybody listening to this that's got any questions about what we've what you've listened to today, please drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Definitely, definitely. And on that note, Mark, thank you very much. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well, and I'm sure we'll get on another one in the future. And until next time, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Mark, and signing out. Thank you for listening to the Digital Report Podcast. Visit digital-rapport.com and discover how to connect, influence, and inspire with ease and start making an impact today. Get tips and guidance on how to transform your expertise into a thriving online business through automation, digital products, and services.